when I came to uh, First Alliance Church, I believe that, that God gave me a very specific uh, task that I'm supposed to accomplish. I believe that one day he'll hold me responsible for it. Uh, now, the methodology, how you accomplish the task, that's always a, a, an issue, isn't it? You're thinking and you're praying and you're making wrong calls sometimes. And it's always controversial and debatable and timing and all those things fit into it. But at the end of the day, the task is non-negotiable. You know, you stand before God with that. Well, he's given me a task, but you know what? He's given you a task as well. If you're following Christ, if your heart is pumping, he has given you a task that he has equipped you for and that one day he will hold you accountable for. Now, that which helps us accomplish our task, though, is not first and foremost uh, our, our work ethic. You know, we're really going to dig in and make it happen or our, our competency or or do we know the right counselors? We're reading the right things or do we have some lucky, lucky breaks that happen once in a while? That, that's not good. important stuff, maybe. And, and it's secondary, though. It will come into play in how we accomplish it. But the first and foremost, most important thing that's so easy for us as Americans to put to the bottom of the list is this. And it's in a, it's in a proposal I'll have for you. And that's this. That to the extent that we will impact our world for God, it's directly dependent on our commitment to God. Uh, in other words, you'll never accomplish anything for him of eternal significance. We can make lots of laser light shows and blow a lot of hot smoke and those kind of things. But you'll never accomplish anything for God if you're not committed to God. Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If, notice the if, if, if you abide in me, remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Fruit that will remain. And so it's important for us, if in fact we're going we're gonna to be standing before him one day, to be held accountable for the task that he's given us. And if the only way to get the task accomplished is by being committed to him, it's pretty important that we figure out exactly what this word commitment means. Because, I mean, that's pretty much a churchy word, isn't it? I mean, it just doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. It's like, you know, like rocks on a playground. That word has been thrown around so much. It's uh, been subjected to the vultures of relativity that doesn't mean a lot and so uh, we want to ask, what does it mean? You know, does it mean church attendance, right? I mean, I mean there's people who, who, when I was growing up, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And then you also came to Friday night and helped with Awana if you were really committed. Well, all right, do I have to come here every Sunday to get in that committed category? And maybe if I come every other Sunday, but I take notes. See, and I'm kind to people, and I'm not grumpy. Does that count? Maybe I could do this every other Sunday and still be in that committed category. Uh, how about Bible reading? Uh, that's probably part of the equation. Do I have to read you know, one chapter a day and be on the New Testament challenge to be you know, in the committed category? And if I read three chapters a day, am I really committed? And if I read five chapters a day, you know, I'm like, like super apostle type material here. Is that right? And how does prayer fit into this? I'm guessing prayer has got to fit in. Committed people pray, right? I mean, if I pray for every meal, does it have to go beyond that? If you did a show of hands, we'd probably say, yeah, it needs to go beyond that. Well, how much? I mean, if I pray for five minutes in the car, does that count? And, and if I pray for 15 minutes, and do I got to get on my knees and maybe I got to go 20 minutes? What? How much? Well, it's, again, it's important that we ask ourselves, what does it look like to be committed? Because there's so much misunderstanding in the church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a guy who lived 3,000 years ago. 
He's a great guy. To our understanding, he was just trying to eke out an existence. He was kind to his employees and all those things. But one day, he found himself at a crossroads of incredible eternal significance where he could choose which way to go. He would have never imagined that this day would hold this form when he got up in the morning, but it did. And the decision he made at that point radically changed his life. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings 19 as we look at this guy. And here's our goal. We want to, we want to try to determine what it means to be committed and see if, in fact, we are Committed as well. Let me give you a little background. First Kings 19. We're going to start in verse 19. 200 years before this verse. 200 years before this verse, Solomon was on the throne. Uh, Israel was in its, its golden age. They were the military power. They were the political power of the area. If Israel wanted it to happen, it happened. If Israel didn't want it to happen, it didn't happen. They controlled the purse strings of, of the area. Uh, Israel had a the, it was a theocracy where every song on the radio was written by Solomon himself. So every piece of music was theologically solid and sound. You didn't have to worry. What's the worldview here? You knew uh, every textbook was written by Solomon. I mean, I mean, the all of the teaching was theologically sound. It was theologically perfect. And you would be easy as a Jew who was living in this era to say, this is it. This is the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. We are on top of the heap. We are number one in the world. This is right. Well, that was 200 years before verse 19. 100 years before verse 19. Solomon had died. And he didn't end up real well, actually. What he did just before he died is he brought in a lot of idolatry, introduced it to Israel through his wives. Uh, The once glorious nation, 100 years before 19, had suffered a horrific civil war. Uh, God was not in the land, it seemed. Nobody cared for God. God wasn't saying too much. The winds blowing were cold. The, the North Israel, the only thing it had in common with South Israel was this synergistic relationship religion that, that they tie, tried to tie Baalism and Yahweh worship together. Now, uh, it's... it's uh, This worship, it's easy to see um, where this came from. When they were out in the the wilderness, God, Yahweh, provided manna and water and all the wonderful things for them to survive. But when they got into Canaan, see, all that dried up. And now they had to get out there and get in the soil and make the plants grow and eat eat accordingly. And the people, the Canaanites who were still there might say, ah, your God's the God of the desert. He's pretty good. But this land belongs to Baal. And if you want your crops to grow... And you want your kids to be healthy and you don't want war. I'm telling you, if I'm you, I'm giving Baal a little attention here. And so the folk kind of took the Yahweh worship and they took the Baal worship and they kind of mixed it together. It had enough truth in it to look OK from the outside, but enough air in it that it was just damning. Now, now this worship, again, it's another one of those words that we throw around. I'm not ready to write a worship of theology here or theology of worship, but let me give you a different definition. Um, worship is the standard in your heart by which you judge people, places, entertainment, conversation, opportunities. Worship is that grid in your heart. You pour all the data through when you're making a decision and a decision comes out. And for those who their, their grid is pure Yahweh worship, well, well, the only questions that are there are 
what is it that, that would benefit God's kingdom the most? Uh, what would God have me to do that is the absolute best for the glory of his name? Those are really the only kind of questions that are in the heart of somebody who's pure Yahweh worship. But see, somebody who's got the Yahweh thing and the Baal thing going, they also ask this. They say, and what's best for me? And how can I get out of this looking cleanest? And what is best for me financially? And, and what is going to be the, the, the most comfortable for me? It's, it's got that Baal worship thing and the Yahweh thing. And maybe put that way, you might look at your own heart and say, you know what? I might have a little Baal worship in my, my worship grid. And probably you do. We have been influenced by the gods of the land we live in. And it's the whole idea of sanctification to get the Baal worship out and purify our hearts with pure Yahweh worship. And so Elisha comes to a land that's like this, and God comes to Elisha, and God's goal is to yank the Baal worship out of his heart so that he can accomplish the task that God has formed. Because unless the Baal worship is out of your heart, here's the bottom line, you'll never accomplish what God has for you. You just won't. We can energize people and get them jazzed emotionally and, and spend lots of money, and all, but you'll never ever accomplish what God has for you as long as the Baal worship is in your in your heart. So let's look at Elisha and see if we can get a handle on what it means to be committed to God. Chapter 19, verse 19 it says, so Elijah. OK, OK, hang on. Let me we gotta stop immediately. Right. I always got Elijah and Elisha mixed up. Who is what here? They took came first here. Elijah, like chicken or the egg. Elijah. This is an easy way to remember this. It's alphabetical. It's the only way I keep it straight. Elijah, it was the senior. Elisha, okay, he was the secondary guy. Got it? Got it? Elijah first, then Elisha. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elisha was a pretty, pretty well-to-do guy. Elisha's ranch was so huge, he needed 12 tractors to make it work. And according to, I mean, this is reading into this a little bit, but they're probably the green and yellow tractors. You know what I mean? He probably nothing cheap or chintzy in Elisha's barn here. He had 12 yoke of oxen. He's driving the 12th pair. That means that he is either either owns this whole whole deal or he's heir of it. He's in charge. He's got all of this down. Uh, he's doing well. This is his retirement. This is his home. This is his, this has probably been in the family for years and years and years. Uh, it, it's him. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now, you got again, you got to think. They're out plowing in a field. And you've got all the, the tractors uh, stagnating and they're going through. And all of a sudden you see this guy walking across their field. And maybe the guy in front saying, hey, buddy, get out of our field. We just plowed this. We just planted. What are you doing? And all of a sudden he recognizes, oh, it's Elijah. So he passes the word back. Hey, psst, psst, psst. It's Elijah. Pass it back. And they pass it all the way back. And it gets to Elisha. And the word comes to him. It's Elijah. I can imagine. He goes, action. Because Elijah was not a guy you really wanted to cross paths with. He was not a party waiting to happen. He was more like a a, a riot waiting to happen, you know, or or a morgue waiting to happen, or a massacre waiting to happen. This is like a major Eeyore guy. He's just, he just, everything bad happened around him. Jezebel had a contract out on him. So you got to know if he's there, the hitmen are not too terribly far behind. He was not in good graces with King Ahab. 
Matter of fact, he just came from a massacre on Mount Carmel where he himself did the massacring. 450 prophets of Baal. He's probably drenched in blood. It's like, oh man, maybe he's just lost. What's he doing here? And he walks up to Elisha, kind of stops, takes off his cloak, throws it on Elisha, and then walks on. Well, Elisha knew exactly what was going on. Elijah is choosing a successor. Elisha's like, no, 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 not me. He knows that the cloak of the prophet, you put that thing on and you go only where God calls you to go. You have no say in it. If you wear the cloak of the prophet, you say what he tells you to say. That's all you say. When you wear the cloak of the prophet, your life is all about doing what he has called you to do. Nothing else. It's like, so what's he do? Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come back with you. This is a a line that was also going to be used in the New Testament. What he's saying here is, Elijah, I've got nothing against prophets. I want you to understand that. You know, some of my best friends are prophets. It's good. You've got a great calling, but it's not a good time. I mean, I just planted this. I mean, we got there's a famine going on, you understand. And, and my job is to help raise food. I mean, I got a noble job. What I'm doing is great. It's a good work. You know, can we do this later? Maybe come back in a couple of years. I've got a lot of stuff I've got to attend to right now. Not right now is what he's saying. And this happens to us all the time. And so we hear maybe some call for commitment. And we think, oh, it's a good plan. Maybe, maybe later. We don't say no because maybe our minds can't handle that. We do the Christian thing, and that's not a good thing to say. But we say, yeah, I'm going to do that later. And that's what he says. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? In other words, Elisha, the call is for right now. It's not for later. You know, if you wanted to just go, just go. It's it's okay. Just go. Forget it. Well, Elisha goes back. So, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. I can imagine he's he's walking back. He's looking over the, the farmstead. He's looking at that hill over there. That's where me and my brothers made that one fort that one time. And dad didn't know about it. Down over there in that valley, that's where the oxen got stuck in the rain. And we almost all drowned. And, and he's looking at the guys at the plows who are looking at him like he's crazy. And he, he recognizes these guys are our friends. He's, they've been in his family for a long, long, long time. Their parents were in his family. These guys are his friends. And he looks to his plow. And his plow is really symbolic of his past. And his, his present and his future. This is his retirement. This is his dreams. This is what he's been made for. This is, this is who he is. But Elijah knows you can't put the cloak of the prophet on if you're hanging on to the plow. And because Elijah, Elisha drives the plow, the plow doesn't drive Elisha. Look what he does. You know, you know it's been funny that he doesn't put the plow in, in the barn. He doesn't lock the, 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 the oxen up in the stall somewhere. 
I'm going to leave these guys here just in case this prophet thing doesn't work out. You know, I'm going to try the cloak of the prophet on, but it may not fit. And I'm going to try it a little bit. But, you know, if, if, if Elijah and I ever like, I just have a nice safety. I could just come back. Oh, no. There's no coming back. He burns his plow. He sacrifices the oxen. Let me ask you, what is your plow? You've got one. That thing in the back of your mind that you hope, 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 hope that God won't ask you for. You know, it's your line. God, I will do anything for you, anything. Just don't ask about this. God, I'll give you 100% of 99.9%, but this one thing. I can't take my Isaac up, Mariah. I just can't. I can't, i.e., I won't. Is it a relationship? Uh, Is it financial security? Is it health? Is it your children? What is the one thing you just can't give up? You, You know, until that one thing, God knows it, by the way, until that one thing is set next to next with commitment to him, and you choose him. I'm not sure we're committed. He knows the plow. And those who are committed to him are plow burners. God, maybe you're going to give this back to me. Maybe not. But I want you to know that more important than anything else is you. I'm committed to you. They're, they're plow burners. There's a second aspect of uh, those who are committed. Hang a right a little bit in the, in the word for just a, a little bit. Second Kings chapter two. Second Kings chapter two. We're going to fast forward a few years. They are plow burners, but they're also price payers. You know, I am a relatively uh, reflective type of person. At one point, when I was in Appleton, Chicago was only four hours away. And it seemed like all roads went through Chicago. And so when I was a youth pastor, we were always going through there to go in some direction, right? And often what I would do is I would go through and I would tell the guys in the back of the van I'm driving, Hey guys, want to see my old home? They're like, Oh no, not the old home thing again. I'm like, Yeah, thanks, wonderful, I'll show you. So I'd take them through and I'd show them. I took my, my boys there one time to show them the stomping ground. You know, then here's where we were and that's what we did. There have been a couple of times, I don't too many, tell many people about this one, but where I've gone there on my own. And I found that if I park my car in front of my old house and look across the street and look really hard, I can see David Sears and Earl Abercrombie coming out to play. And if I go to the old park and I park and I get on the swings and the the tornado slide and uh, they must have changed it. They put in much smaller ones there these days. But I would be there and I would think of the the battles and the, the pretend wars and the real wars that we had there. And some of the defining moments in my life there. And I'd go back to the playground and uh, stand in front of a piece of fence. I remember doing this where we would use that piece as the goal when we played street hockey. You kind of pretend like you're a goalie again. Make sure no one's looking because that looks kind of tacky. I'd reflect. I, I think that what's going on here is Elijah is reflecting. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, he's getting close to the end, in a world when Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. 
I think that as a non, if you're not an Orthodox Jew, you may have a harder time understanding what Bethel is. You know, it, it means the house of God. And uh, it is mentioned more than any other city in Scripture other than Jerusalem. Bethel, it's where everything started. It was in Bethel where, where God came to Abram and said, Hey, Abram, look at the stars. So shall your seed be. It was in Bethel that, that God came to Isaac and reaffirmed the covenant. Uh, a Jew would say Bethel is the place of, of promise. But at this point in history, Bethel is a place of unfulfilled promise. Seems like God's not around. The land is anything but, 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 but holy. Uh, everybody's into idolatry. God doesn't seem to care. The winds are blowing cold these days. The promise is not fulfilled. And I think what Elijah's doing, he's looking over at Elijah saying, Elisha, I know you want to wear the cloak of the prophet, but I don't think you understand the price that comes with that cloak. I wish I could tell you that, that you will see God do amazing things and there will be revival and there's going to be incredible acts of God that you will see by wearing that cloak. But you know what? Sometimes you're not going to see God at all. You're going to be haunted by the silence of God simply because you put that thing on. And when you put that thing on, you're going, you're going to find that, that people are not responsive as you think they ought to be. And God is, is not working the way you want him to work. As a matter of fact, he's doing some things that seem to be against his promises. And that's a tough, tough price to pay. I'm not so sure you can pay it. So just go back. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Verse four. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. Brook Cherith is at Jericho, near Jericho. You remember first Kings 17. God called uh, good old Elijah because he was a prophet and prophets always go and do say what God's called them to say and do and go. And so he goes to Ahab, had to confront him about his sin. There's not going to be any rain in the land. Well, Elijah gets upset about this. Or excuse me, Ahab gets upset about this and sends his whole army, Ahab's army, to, to, to find Elijah and, and, and teach him a lesson. Well, Elijah, Elijah goes and he hides at the brook Cherith for years where, where he's fed by ravens. And I, I, I think that what's happening here is Elijah is saying, Elisha. The cloak of the prophet sometimes comes with some pretty extreme loneliness. And if you wear that cloak, I hope you're prepared for the fact that God is going to ask you to take a stand sometimes, a stand that's not real popular. And you're going to have to do things, things that no one else understands, things that other people are going to raise an army to try to exterminate you. And I don't know if you can pay that price because it's pretty hard. And Elisha says, as he replied, surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. In verse six, then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. The Jordan River has often been associated with death. Even back then, it's here actually where Elijah is, is going to depart and to be with the Lord. And he might be saying, you know what, Elisha, I wish I could promise you that, that that cloak of the prophet you put on, it's a bulletproof vest. But it's not. It's a target. 
And the lifespan of, of prophets is, is usually substantially less than everyone else. And so if you're looking for disease free and happy and comfortable and convenient and long life, you know what? You just better take it off because there's no promise there. It would sure be nice if there was a promise there. What is it? When you look at at the apostles, 12 of them wearing the the cloak of the prophet, 11 of them die a martyr's death and the 12th one dies in prison. Uh, Ask Jim Elliott who put it on or John Huss or, or... uh, Latimer or Cramner, some of the reformers who were burned at the stake because they decided to wear the cloak of the prophet. Uh, talk to John and Betty Stam. Have you heard about the Stams? You've heard about these guys? They uh, met at Moody in 1930. I fell in love, dated all those. But, but John felt that he was called to the outer provinces of China, a very dangerous place to take a wife and a family. And so they broke off their, their engagement. Uh, Betty goes back to China. Her parents were missionaries there. So she went back there. A year after she was back, she came into Shanghai Medical Reasons. And lo and behold, John, who had graduated, was in Shanghai now for language school, I think. So that's why he was there. That They ran into each other accidentally. And one of the back roads of Shanghai. Figure that. You know, what are the odds, right? Well, they look at this and they recognize only God could orchestrate this. And so they renew their relationship. They, they get married. A baby follows. Then uh, 1934, they go to the Anhu province of China. Two years previously, uh, the government had to ag- evacuate all missionaries because the, the threat of the communist guerrillas was, was so dangerous. But now the government was kind of thumbs up saying, hey, that's past. That's, things are calm there. And so in late November, the Stams end up there. By early December, they've been captured by the communist guerrillas that overtook the town and the compound they were in. Uh, they allowed John to write a letter to the China Inland Mission, where he was from, that night. It's uh, Tsingte, December 6, 1934. China Inland Mission, Shanghai. Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Tsingta. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. Things happened so quickly this morning. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever persistent rumors really became alarming so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. In him, John C. Stam. Next day, the communists marched them to another town, stripped them of all their outer clothing, humiliation. They would ask all the 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 public in the town to come on out for the execution so they could watch. Several months later, they found Betty's things. And in it was a poem, one of her favorites. And it's called Afraid. It says, Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, O heaven's art, a wound of his a counterpart, 
Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot? Afraid of that? John and Betty stand when they put on the cloak of the prophet. They knew there was a price that would be paid. And when the time came, they paid it. Those who are truly committed are plow burners. They're price payers, but they're also pace setters. Look at verse 9. When they crossed, they crossed the Jordan. Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I am taken from you? This wasn't an empty kind of uh, request by some homeless guy. Elijah had an in with God. He had some power here. Uh, now, personally, I'd be talking about, well, let's see if you can get my plow back, right? But he says, uh, this was Elisha's response. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elisha replied. I want a faith that can handle the Jezebel situations. I want a faith that when I'm at Mount Carmel with 450 people against me, I can, I can respond in a way that would please God. I want a faith that will handle the loneliness and will handle the, the ridicule and will allow me to stand when everybody else is against me. I want to know him better than anybody else has known him. I want to know him better than even you have known him, Elijah. That's a kind of quite the bold ambition, isn't it? But the wild thing, when that is your only heart's cry, you get it. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. And he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. Boy, my, uh, many, many, many years ago, I, I remember when he walked through the doors at my, my church, uh, Dan Reimer was a brand new Christian. I, I'm not even sure how he, he came to know Christ, but brand new Christian. He walked in. I was kind of greeting at the time. He said, I'm new to this. What do I need to do? <laughs> so I thought, wow. OK, great. Well, I was trying to recruit people to work in youth groups. So I said, well, this is what you got to do, buddy. If you want to, you got to work with the youth. He said, well, I'll do what I got to do. So we, we worked for years together, and I watched Dan just blossom. He got Dan's jacket, by the way. I watched him blossom and, and grow, and he took on a whole portion of the ministry, and it was growing under him. And so I wasn't terribly surprised when he came to me one day and said, Mark, I think God may be calling me into ministry. So we, we upped our discipleship ante and started working harder and working harder. And he says, well, Mark, he came, came back to me and said, now, I think I need to go to seminary. I said, well... That's a huge commitment, Dan. But if God's calling you to seminary, let me tell you this. Uh, Satan's not going to let you go without some sort of, 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 of confrontation. So you'd be watching because he's going to do something to try to put the brakes on. Uh, the day Dan is supposed to go into his boss's office to tell him this is his future, this is what he's going to do, his boss calls him in. 
He sits down with his boss and several HR guys. They offer him a pretty substantial uh, uh, promotion, pretty substantial raise, a lot more power, nicer office. Uh, But Dan told us, guys, you don't understand. I I don't expect you to, but there is a God. He's called me away from this uh, into ministry. So Dan sold his house. He had a pretty classy vehicle, sold it. He used all the money basically to pay for his seminary. When he got out of seminary, he was working at some small church in western Illinois. He is now the senior pastor of, I think, the largest evangelical church in North Platte, Nebraska. Talk to him this week. This is his, his jacket. What would you do this morning if Dan came up to you, had his jacket, fell in your lap, said, can you put it on? What would you do? You know, one of the, the things that we have going for us here in America is we hear calls to commitment and we say, well, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. I don't know what I'd do. Oh, maybe I'll think about it, pray about it, get some counsel. They didn't, Elisha did not have that option. He had to choose right now. And you know what? We're going to have to as well this morning. I'm conscious of the time, but we do what the Spirit says. And so I'm going to start and throwing it to Joe, you first, Joe. And he will have to stand up and either put this thing on and say, by God's grace, God's power, I don't know how it, but I'm giving myself to God. Or he's going to have to stand up and say, not today, and pass it on. And we'll hit your lap this morning. What are you going to do when it does? Aren't you right? We're not going to do this. <laughs> You know, we don't have time for this. <laughs> but what would you do if, if we did? Please don't, don't, don't let this morning go. Say in your, make sure you've told God, if you can't put this on, make sure you tell him, you know, God, not today. Because really, that's what you're telling him anyway, if you choose no. If you choose Yes. Maybe this is the first time you have ever, you've heard this morning, maybe the first time you you, you want to commit your life to him. You recognize that the reason why is because uh, many years later, Jesus would come and he would die for our sin and he would say, follow me. The following thing was part part of the motif of scripture. And so this morning, maybe you'd say, yeah, to hit my lap. I've never done this before, but yeah, I'd, I'd put it on. This is what I want you to do. In the pew in front of you, there's a little card, the pew rack. Yes, card. Would you take that thing? Would you check it? And then on your way out, stop off at the Get Connected table. And just, you don't have to say anything. Just give them the card. And they will give you a little packet that we've assembled for you. Uh, Second thing for for any of us. Maybe you've put this on many years ago. But you know what? Today it's in the closet someplace. Or maybe it's back along the road where you hit a crisis. Or you had some unanswered questions. And you thought, you know what? Price is a little bit too, too much for me. Uh, this morning, what, what I want you, if you want to put it back on, what I want to encourage you to do, I'm going to pray in just a moment, then I'm going to ask us to stand. We're going to sing a cappella. Uh, but while we're singing, if you want to drive that home deep this morning, the uh, altar's available. Could you come up just between you and God and say, God, I'm putting this thing on. I don't know what it means. You might mean you keep me exactly where I am, but I want you to know everything of what I've got is yours.